Welcome to a continued reading of Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, Pastoral Letters. This is Letter 5. Can we do anything to render our death, which cannot be far off, both safe and comfortable? No doubt, by God's assistance, we can do much to accomplish this, these desirable ends if we will set about the work in good earnest. I know that there is a feeling of despondency habitually existing in the minds of some aged persons of serious disposition, which leads them to conclude that if they are not now prepared to die, they will never be. And from all the acquaintance which I have had with professors of religion, I am constrained to think that, as their near approach to the grave does not increase their impressions of the importance of eternal realities, so old age has no tendency to render the evidences of their union with Christ more clear and satisfactory. You may frequently inquire of a dozen such professors in succession whether they have obtained a comfortable assurance of the goodness of their spiritual condition, and the probability is that four out of five, if not nine out of ten, will answer in the negative and will express serious doubts whether they were ever the subjects of regenerating grace. It was not, I believe, always so with those who cordially received the doctrines of grace and rested their souls upon them. To say nothing about the joyful confidence and assured hope of the apostles and primitive Christians, the members of the first reformed churches seem to have derived from the pure doctrines of the Bible a high degree of peace and joy. The same was the fact among the pious Puritans of old and New England, and the, and the Presbyterians of Scotland in the best and purest days of the Scottish Church. The question has often occurred, why does the belief of these doctrines afford less comfort now than in former times? It is not my purpose at present to attempt to account for this fact. I do it merely to show that most professors among us are not actually prepared for death. Even if their state should be one of safety, they cannot view their approaching end with confidence and comfort. And whilst their evidences of genuine piety are so dubious, they are of course they, they of course cannot know that they are in a safe condition. It is then of the utmost importance that all professors of the above description, and especially the aged, should be importunately urged to give diligence to make their calling and election sure. I am aware that some Christians who enjoy very comfortable evidences of being the adopted children of God are not willing to profess that they have arrived at full assurance. They suppose that they who have attained to this high privilege are in a state of uninterrupted joy and that no shadow of doubt ever passes over their minds. The truth is they do possess a solid assurance. Although their frames of mind are not always equally comfortable, and although the evidence is not so great that it cannot be increased. I recollect, when very young, to have heard a judicious minister conversing with an eminently pious old lady who had belonged to the church under the care of the Reverend Samuel Davis in the county of Hanover. In answer to some inquiry respecting the comfort which she enjoyed in the service of her divine master, she said, 
after expressing lively feelings of faith, penitence and gratitude, but my dear friend, I have never yet attained to the faith of assurance. All I can say is that I have the faith of reliance. Well, said the minister, if you know that you have the faith of reliance, that is assurance. The degrees of evidence possessed by different Christians are various, from the feeblest hope up to strong confidence, and the clearness of the evidence to the same person varies exceedingly. But in general, there seems to be in our church a sad falling below par in respect to this matter. It has, however, often been correctly observed that we are not to expect dying grace before the dying hour arrives. God gives strength as we need it, and when the believer is called to severe trials or to difficult duties, he commonly receives aid proportioned to the urgency of his wants, and is surprised to find himself held up by a power not his own. Thus we have often seen the sincere, humble Christian, who during life was subject to bondage through fear of death, triumphing in the dying hour. This expectation of special aid ought to be encouraged. It is indeed a part of that preparation which we should make. And if we confidently rely on the Great Shepherd to meet us, and comfort us while walking through the valley and, of valley and shadow death, he will not disappoint us. But in dealing with professors troubled with doubts, we are too apt to proceed on the assumed principle that notwithstanding their sad misgivings and fears, they are at bottom sincere Christians and have the root of the matter in them, while in regard to many this may be an entire mistake and we are in danger of cherishing them a fatal delusion. Here the skill and fidelity of the spiritual watchmen are put to the test, and while they should not deviate a hair's breadth from the rule of the divine word, it is better that the pious Christian should suffer some unnecessary pain than that the false professor should be bolstered up with delusive hopes. I must say, therefore, that the true reason why many professors have no comfortable evidence of their religion is because they have none. They have never experienced a new birth, and being still dead in trespasses and sins, it is no wonder that they cannot find in themselves what does not exist. I abhor a censorious spirit, which upon slight grounds judges this or that professor to be graceless. But all my experience and observation lead me to believe that, in our day, as well as in former times, the foolish burdens constitute a full moiety of the visible church. What I would urge, therefore, on you, my aged friends, and on myself, is a more serious, impartial, and thorough examination into the foundation of our hope of heaven than perhaps we have ever yet made. Let us go back to the commencement of our religious course and see whether, in our present more mature judgment, we can conclude that we were then the subjects of a saving change. I do not ask you whether you had an increase of serious feelings or whether your sympathies were strongly excited and experienced some change from a state of terror or distress to comfort, for all these things may be experienced 
and have been experienced by unregenerate persons. Let us carefully inquire whether the habitual tenor of our lives has been such as to satisfy us that a new nature was received. If we have fallen into sin, have we deeply and sincerely repented of it? Have we wept bitterly for our sin like Peter? Or have we mourned in deep sorrow like David? Not such repentance as some experience, who after all their convictions and confessions return again to the same course of iniquity. But after all examinations of past experience, the main point is, what is the present, habitual state of our hearts? Do we now love God as his character is exhibited in his word? Do we hunger and thirst after holiness, or a complete conformity to the law of God? Would be we be willing that that law should be relaxed in its demands to afford us some indulgence? Do we seek our chief happiness in the favor of God and in communion with him in his word and ordinances? Is his glory uppermost in our desires? And do we sincerely wish and determine to do all that we can to promote the kingdom of the Redeemer? Do we sincerely love the people of God of every sect and name because they bear his image and are the redeemed children of God? Again, what is the ground on which we expect the pardon of sin and the favor of God? Is it because we are better than many others? Is it because we have had what we esteem great experiences? Is it on account of our moral demeanor or charitable benefactions? Dare we trust in any measure to our own goodness and righteousness? If we build on any of these, or on any similar grounds, then we are on a sandy foundation, and all our towering hopes must fall. Methinks I hear the humble penitent saying, All these things I count for loss for Christ. I feel that I, die, I deserve to die. I never was more convinced of anything than that it would have been perfectly just for God to send me to hell. And now all my trust and all my hope, if I know my own heart is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his perfect righteousness and intercession, and all my confidence of being able to serve God hereafter or to persevere for a single day is in the grace of the Holy Spirit. The whole evidence of Christian character may be reduced to two particulars. Entire trust in Christ for justification and a sincere and universal love of holiness with a dependence on the Holy Spirit for its existence, continuance and increase. If, my friend, you have these evidence now, you need not perplex yourself by a multitude of scruples. You may dismiss your doubt God's word will never deceive any who rely upon its guidance. You may not know the day, nor even the year, when spiritual light commenced in your soul. And yet, if you feel its warm pulsations, if you breathe its genuine aspirations, if your heart's treasures are in heaven, and if the cause of God is dearer to you than any other interest, if his people are dearer to you than any other people, if your most constant and supreme desire is to glorify God, your Redeemer, whether by living or dying, then you may, you, then may you welcome death. He is no king of terrors to you. You may 
say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Perhaps some of you are afraid of the pangs of death. You have heard of the convulsive struggle, the dying groans, the difficult breathing, and the ghastly countenance. Well, it must be confessed, the scene is appalling, but it is soon over, forever. I am of opinion, however, that often there is the appearance of dreadful suffering where the patient is unconscious of any very acute pain. And very frequently the departure of the immortal spirit is, at the last, like falling into a gentle sleep. And not infrequently, while the body is racked with pain, or with what would produce pain in other circumstances, the soul is so supported and comforted by the sweet peace of God poured into it, that the disorders and convulsions of the body are scarcely thought of. And in many instances, God takes his people away by a sudden stroke. They know nothing about it until they awake in heaven. Oh, what a transition! Or, if it be necessary to let in the light of glory gradually, God, who knows our constitution, will order all things well. But I would advise you to meditate much on death. Collect, and have in memory, a number of precious promises for the occasion. Put up many prayers for grace and strength for a dying hour. Beg an interest in the intercession of your Christian friends. Keep your minds calm and yield not to perturbing cares. Be found at your post with the summons, when the summons comes with your loins girded and lights burning. Settle beforehand all your worldly affairs. Counsels of the aged to the young. It is a matter of serious regret that young persons are commonly so little disposed to listen to the advice of the aged. This prejudice seems to have its origin in an apprehension that austerity and rigor naturally belong to advanced years and that the loss of all susceptibility of pleasure from those scenes and objects which afford delight to the young produces something of an ill-natured or envious feeling towards them. Now, can it be denied that some of the aged are chargeable with the fault of being too rigid and exacting from youth the same steady gravity which is becoming in those who have lived long and have had much experience in the world? not remembering that the constitutional temperament of these two periods of human life is very different. In youth, the spirits are buoyant, the susceptibilities lively, the affections ardent, and the hopes sanguine. To the young, everything in the world wears a garb of freshness, and the novelty and variety of the scenes presented keep up a constant excitement. These traits of youthful character, as long as irregularity and excess are avoided, are not only allowable, but amiable, and would in that age be badly exchanged for the more sedate and grave emotions which are the natural effects of increasing years and of long and painful experience. But it is greatly to be desired that the lessons of wisdom taught by the experience of one set of men should be available for the instruction of those who come after them. We have therefore 
determined to address a few short hints of advice to the rising generation on subjects of deep and acknowledged importance to all. But previously to commencing, we would assure them that it is in no part of our object to interfere with their innocent enjoyments, or to deprive them of one pleasure which cannot be shown to be injurious to their best interests. We wish you to approach you, dear youth, in the character of affectionate friends, rather in that of the rather than in that of dogmatical teachers or stern reprovers. We would therefore solicit your patient, candid, and impartial attention to the following counsels. 1. Resolve to form your lives upon some certain principles and to regulate your actions by fixed rules. Man was made to be governed by reason and not by mere accident or caprice. It is important, therefore, that you begin early to consider and inquire what is the proper course of human conduct and to form some plan for your future lives. The want of such consideration is manifest in the conduct of multitudes. They are governed by the impulse of the moment, reckless of consequences. They have fixed no steady aim and have adopted no certain principles of action. Living thus at random, it would be a miracle if they went uniformly right. In order to your pursuing a right path, you must know what it is, and to acquire this knowledge, you must divest yourselves of thoughtless giddiness. You must take time for serious reflection. It will not answer to adopt without consideration the opinions of those who may be about you, for they may have some sinister design in regard to you, or they may themselves be misled by error or prejudice. Persons already involved in dissipation or entangled in error naturally desire to keep themselves in countenance by the number of followers whom they can seduce into the paths of vice. As reasonable creatures, therefore, judge you by yourselves what course is right and fitting that you should pursue. Exercise your own reason independently and impartially, and do not give yourselves up to be governed by mere caprice and passion, or by the opinions of others. 2. While you are young, avail yourselves of every opportunity of acquiring useful knowledge. Reason should guide us, but without correct knowledge, reason is useless, just as the most perfectly formed eye would be useless without light. There is in every man a natural thirst for knowledge which needs only to be cultivated and rightly directed. All have not equal opportunities of obtaining important knowledge, but all have more advantages for this object than they improve. The sources of information are innumerable. The principal, however, are books and living men. In regard to the former, no age of the world which has passed were so favoured with a multiplicity of books as our own. Indeed, the very number and diversity of character and tendency of authors now create one of the most obvious difficulties to those who are destitute of wise advisers. It would be an unwise counsel to tell you to read indiscriminately whatever comes to hand. The press gives circulation not only to useful knowledge, but to error dressed up plausibly in the garb of truth. Many books are useless. Others are 
are on the whole injurious and some are impregnated with a deadly poison. Waste not your time in works of idle fiction. Touch not the book which exhibits vice in alluring form. Seek the advice of judicious friends in the choice of books. But you may also learn much from listening to the conversation of the wise and good. There is scarcely a person so ignorant who has lived any time in the world that cannot communicate some profitable hint to the young. Avail yourselves, then, of every opportunity of learning what you do not know, and let not pride prevent you from seeking instruction, lest by this means you should betray your ignorance. Cherish the desire of knowledge, and keep your mind constantly awake and open to instruction from every quarter. But especially, I would recommend to you the acquisition of self-knowledge. Know thyself was a precept held in such high esteem among the ancients that the honor of inventing it was claimed for several of their wisest men, and not only so, but on account of their superlative excellence. It was believed by many to have been uttered by the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, at which place, as Pliny informs us, it was conspicuously written in letters of gold over the door of the temple. And this species of knowledge is also inculcated in the Christian scriptures as most useful and necessary. Examine yourselves, says Paul, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. And in the Old Testament, the value of this knowledge is also fully recognized where we are exhorted to commune with our own hearts and to keep our hearts with all diligence and the possession of it is made an object of fervent prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. As this knowledge is necessary to all, so it is placed within the reach of all. But it cannot be acquired without diligent self-examination. To this duty, there exists in human nature a strong repugnance, partly from natural and partly from moral causes, so that by most it is entirely neglected to their exceeding great detriment. But when it is attempted, we are in great danger of being misled by self-love and prejudice. To acquire any true knowledge of ourselves, some good degree of honesty and impartiality is essentially requisite. But an honest desire to arrive at the truth is not the only prerequisite to self-knowledge. The mind must be enlightened in regard to the standard of rectitude to which we ought to be conformed. The entrance of thy word giveth light. The word of God should dwell richly in us and by the rules and principles of the sacred volume, we should form all our sentiments respecting ourselves. This is the candle of the Lord, which searches the inward parts of man, and without such a lamp it would be impossible to obtain any considerable degree of self-knowledge, as to distinguish the objects in a dark room without a light. Self-examination 
accompanied with a careful perusal of the Holy Scriptures, will lead us daily to a more thorough knowledge of our own character. Beware of the common illusion of forming your estimate of yourselves from the favorable opinion of those around you. They cannot know the secret principles from which you act, and flattery may have much influence in leading them to speak in your praise. Seize favorable opportunities of judging of the latent strength of your passions. The fact is that, until some new conjuncture or occasion elicit your feel- our feelings, we are as ignorant of what is within us as other persons. Study also your constitutional temperament, and consider attentively the power which particular objects and circumstances have over you. You may often learn, even from your enemies and culminators, what are the weak points in your character. They are sagacious in detecting faults, and generally have some shadow of pretext from what they allege against us. We may therefore derive much more benefit from the sarcasm of our foes than from the flattery of our friends. Learn, moreover, to form a correct estimate of your own abilities as this is a necessary guide to guide you in your undertakings. 3. Be careful to form good habits. Almost all permanent habits are contracted in youth, and these do in fact form the character of the man through life. It is Paley, I believe, who remarks that we act from habit nine times where we do once from deliberation. Little do young persons apprehend the momentous consequences of many of their most frequently repeated actions. Some habits are merely inconvenient, but have no moral quality. Others affect the principles of our conduct and become sources of good or evil to an incalculable degree. As to the former, they should be avoided, as detracting from our comfort and ultimately interfering with our usefulness but the latter should be deprecated as laying the foundation of a wicked character and as standing in the way of all mental and moral improvement. 4. Be particular and select in the company which you keep and the friendships which you form. Tell me, says the proverb, what company you keep and I will tell you what you are. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Vice is more easily and extensively diffused by improper companions than by all other means. As one infected sheep communicates disease to the whole flock, so one sinner often destroys much good by corrupting all the youth who fall under his influence. When vicious men are possessed of wit and fascinating manners, their conversation is most dangerous to the young. We would entreat you, dear young friends, to form an intimacy with no one whose principles are suspicious. The friendship of profligate men is exceedingly dangerous. Listen not to their fair speeches and warm professions of attachment. Fly from contact with them as from an infected, one infected with the plague. Form no close alliance with such. No more think of taking them to your bosom than you would a viper. Gaze not on their beauty, 
nor suffer yourself to be charmed with their fascination of manners. Under these specious appearances, a deleterious poison lurks. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, is the exhortation of Scripture. And what can be more unseemly and incongruous than for an amiable and virtuous woman to be indissolubly united to an unprincipled debauchee, or for a good man to be connected with a woman destitute of piety and virtue. Be especially careful, therefore, in forming alliances for life. Seek a connection with with the wise and good, and you will become wiser and better by converse with such. 5. Endeavour to acquire and maintain a good reputation. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. A ruined fortune may be recovered. A lost reputation never. Young men are often laying the foundation of an unenviable reputation while they are thinking of no such thing. They never dream that the character which they attain at school or college will probably be as lasting as life. The youth who is known to be addicted to falsehood, knavery, treachery, etc., when arrived at the age of man, will be viewed by those who know him with distrust. A stain on the character is not easily washed out. At a distant period, the faults and follies of youth may be revived to a man's confusion and injury but especially is a female character exquisitely delicate. A small degree of impudence will often fix a stigma on the gay young lady with no subsequent sobriety can completely erase. We do not mean that the young should cherish a false sense of honour, which would lead them to fight and contend for reputation. No man ever secured or increased a good name by shedding the vital blood of a human being. The reputation which we recommend must arise from a life of consistent and uniform well-doing. Prize such a character as of inestimable value to your own peace and the most powerful means of usefulness. The most potent human engine of utility is influence and this depends entirely on reputation. 6. Manage your worldly concerns with economy and discretion. Avoid the inconvenience, embarrassment, and vexation of being in debt. Conduct your business with attention and diligence, and have your accounts in such a condition that you will be at no loss to ascertain the true state of your affairs. Men often become unjust and injurious to others without having intended any such thing, merely by a confused and careless manner of transacting their business. Such a man, after a while, feels an unconquerable aversion to a scrutiny into his affairs. He shuts his eyes against the ruin which he is bringing on himself, and heedlessly rushes forward in the path which habit or fashion has rendered agreeable. When at length and exigence arise which constrains him to adopt some measure to extricate himself from his difficulties, he is placed under strong temptation to resort to a course which is not strictly honourable. He persuades himself that, if he can save his credit for the present, 
he will be able to rectify everything by diligence and good fortune and to preserve his friends from suffering on his account. But these efforts to recover lost ground commonly prove ineffectual and render the situation the person more involved than before. He finds at length that he is sinking and this discovery often produces a desperate recklessness. He plunges deeper and deeper into debt and often drags to ruin not only his own family, but some of his friends who confided to implicitly in his truth and integrity. It is also too common for men who have failed in trade to resort to means for the support of a helpless family, which a sound moral faculty never can approve. The temptation arising from the tender love of wife and children is indeed very strong, but not invincible. In the commercial world, there are many illustrious examples of merit, honor, and strictest probity in men who have had it in their power to defraud their creditors or deeply to involve their confiding friends, but who choose rather to look haggard poverty in the face and see their beloved families descending from affluence into the veil of obscurity than to be guilty of a dishonorable act. And in the long run, this turns out more to the benefit of those persons than any advantage obtained by a resort to shifts and evasions not entirely consistent with the highest integrity. He who sacrifices reputation for present comfort buys it at too dear a rate. The merchant who, when he fails, loses his reputation for truth and integrity will meet with but little favor from the world and will have very little chance of rising again. But he who has been unfortunate, and yet maintains his integrity, and preserves his character unsullied, is often able to enter again into business under favorable auspices, and is encouraged and aided in his attempts to gain a living by men of wealth and standing. Such a man is often successful to such a degree that he has it in his power to compensate those from whom benefit was derived in the day of his calamity. Beware of being governed by ambition in your commercial enterprises. The pride of doing a large business and of being considered as at the head of the profession seduces many aspiring young merchants, and greediness of gain tempts still more to engage in hazardous speculations and to trade to an extent not authorized by the capital which they have at command. In this way, bankruptcies become so common that the event ceases to excite much surprise. Families, delicately educated and long accustomed to the luxuries as well as the comforts of life, are reduced to poverty. Multitudes of such families are found in our large commercial cities who are really, more properly, the objects of benevolence than is the common beggar who clamorously solicits your charity. The real privations and sufferings of such are not fully known, for, from the desire of avoiding the contempt and pity of vulgar minds, such persons spread a decent veil over their indigence, and prefer to pine secretly in want, rather than to seek relief by public disclosure of their necessities. The Christian philanthropist will, however, seek out such sufferers, and will contrive methods of bestowing relief upon them in a way consistent with the delicacy of their feelings. 
The above remarks are particularly adapted to those who engage in commerce, but they are not inapplicable to others. It is true, integrity is the soul of a merchant, but it is a sterling quality which every man ought to possess, and all men are liable to be reduced to a state of indigence by a long series of untoward events. My counsel then is that you commence and pursue business with prudence, and when unfortunate, that you shall act as to preserve your integrity and your reputation by resorting to no un no evocable means of relief, but resolve to act in conformity with the strictest rules of justice and honour. 7. Aim at consistency in your Christian character. There is a beauty in moral consistency which resembles the symmetry of a well-proportioned building where nothing is deficient, nothing redundant. Consistency can only be acquired and maintained by cultivating every part of the Christian character. The circle of virtues must be complete, without chasms or obliquities. A character well-proportioned and nicely balanced in all its parts, we are not very frequently permitted to witness. For while in one branch there is vigor and even exuberance, in another there may be the appearance of feebleness and sterility. The man is distinguished from virtues of a particular class is apt to be deficient in those which belong to a different class. This is so commonly the fact that many entertain the opinion that the same person cannot excel in every virtue. Thus it is not expected that the man of remarkable firmness and intrepidity, intrepidity should at the same time be distinguished from meekness and gentleness. But after making due allowance for a difference of constitutional temperament, we must maintain that there is not, nor can there be, any incompatibility between the several virtues of the Christian life. They all branches of the same root, and the principle which affords nourishment to one communicates its virtue to all. As all truth is harmonious, however it may, on a superficial and partial view, seem to be contradictory, so all the exercises of moral goodness are not only consistent, but assist and adorn each other. There is, this is so much the case that symmetry of Christian character has, by some distinguished casuistic writers, been laid down as a necessary evidence of genuineness, and it has been insisted on, as probable, that where one virtue seems to exist in great strength, while others are remarkably wanting, it is a mark of spuriousness. There is much reason in this view of the subject, for men are frequently found whose zeal blazes out ardently and conspicuously so as to lead most others far back in the shade, while they are totally destitute of that humility, meekness, and brotherly kindness which form an essential part of the Christian character. Some men are conscientious and punctilious in the performance of all rites and external duties connected with the worship of God, who are inattentive to the obligations of strict justice and veracity in their intercourse with men. And on the other hand, many boast of their morality and yet are notoriously inattentive to the duties of religion. Real Christians, too, 
are often chargeable with inconsistency, which arises from a want of discernment of the rule of moral conduct in its application to particular cases. For while the general principles of duty are plain and easily understood by all, the ability to discriminate between right and wrong in many complicated cases is extremely rare. This delicate and correct perception of moral relations can only be acquired by the divine blessing on our assiduous exertions. It is too commonly taken for granted that Christian morals are a subject so easy that all close study of it is unnecessary. This is an injurious mistake. Many of the deficiencies and inconsistencies of Christians are owing to a want of clear and correct knowledge of the exact rule of moral conduct. On no subject will you find a greater diversity of opinion than in regard to the lawfulness or unlawfulness of particular practices. And even good men are often thrown into difficulty and doubt respecting the proper course to be pursued. But while many cases of inconsistency arise from ignorance of the exact standard of rectitude, more must be attributed to heedlessness and forgetfulness. Men do not act sufficiently from principle, but too much from custom, from fashion, and from habit. Thus many actions are performed without any inquiry into their moral character. There is an obtuseness in the moral sensibility which permits evils to pass without any, any man adversion. Another cause of the inconsistency com commonly observed is a prevalence which certain passions or appetites may obtain in the time of temptation. The force of the internal principles of evil is not perceived when the objects and circumstances favorable to the exercise are absent. As the venomous adder seems to be harmless while chilled with cold, that soon manifests it his malignity when brought near the fire, so sin often lies hidden in the bosom as though it were dead, until some exciting cause draws it forth into exercise, and then the person himself is surprised to find the strength of his own passions above everything which he had before conceived. Thus men often act, in certain circumstances, in a way altogether contrary to the general tenor of their conduct. It is by no means a fair inference from a single act of irregularity that the person who is guilty of it has acted hypocritically in all the apparent good actions of his former life. The true explanation is that principles of action which has been commonly been able to govern and restrain, acquire, and in some unguarded moment or under the power of some strong temptation, a force which is good principles are not at that moment strong enough to oppose. And the man who is usually correct and orderly may thus be overtaken in a fault. And as all are liable to the same frailties, there should exist a disposition to receive and restore an offending brother who he, when he gives sufficient evidence of penitence. Man at his best estate in this world is an inconsistent creature. The only persons in whom this defect is not observed are the men who by grace live near to God and exercise a constant jealousy and vigilance over themselves. But when faith is weak and inconstant, great inconsistencies will mar the beauty of the Christian character.
The young person ought, therefore, to begin early to exercise his vigilance, and to keep their hearts with all diligence, lest they be ensnared by their own passions, and overcome by the power of temptation. I counsel you then, my young friends, to aim at consistency. Cultivate assiduously every part of the Christian character, so that there may appear a beautiful proportion in your virtue. The reflections to which I have been led in speaking of consistency of Christian character suggest the importance of urging upon you the government of your passions. A man who has no control over his passions is justly compared to a ship at sea which is driven by fierce winds while she neither is governed by the rudder nor steered by the compass. But indulgence, the passion by indulgence, the passions gain strength very rapidly, and once the habit of indulgence is fixed, the moral condition of the sinner is most deplorable and almost desperate. To preserve consistency, it is necessary to be well acquainted with the weak points in our own character, to know something of the strength of our own passions, and to guard beforehand against occasion and temptations which would be likely to cause us to act inconsistently with our Christian profession. Many men have successfully contended with their own passions, and though naturally of a hasty and irritable temper, have by constant discipline brought themselves into a habitual state of equanimity, so that however they may be conscious of the strugglings and the natural passions, they are kept so completely under restraint that to others they do not seem to exist. The anecdote which is related of Socrates and the physiognomist is instructed on this point. When the latter, upon examining the lines of, a, of the philosopher's face, pronounced that he was a man of bad temper and exceedingly irascible, the disciples of Socrates laughed him to scorn as having betrayed the weakness of his heart by so totally mistaken the true disposition of their master. But he checked their ridicule by acknowledging that his natural temper had been truly represented by the physiognomist, but that by the discipline of philosophy he had been able to acquire such a mastery over his passions that their existence was not apparent. To achieve a victory of this kind is more honorable than to conquer in the field of battle according to that of the wise man. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. And again, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Learn then, my young friends, to bridle your passions and govern your temper from your earliest days. Be contented with the station and circumstances in which providence has placed you. Never repine at God's dealings towards you, nor envy those who are above you in worldly advantages. Consider not so much what you lack as what you have, and look less at those above you than at those in inferior circumstances. Accustom yourself to look on the bright 
rather than the dark side of the picture. Indulge not in unreasonable fears, nor give way to feelings of despondency. Exercise fortitude and maintain tranquility of mind. Be not ruffled and disconcerted by every little cross event which may occur. Place not your happiness at the disposal of everyone who may be disposed to speak an unkind word or to do an unhandsome thing. Learn to possess your souls in patience, believing that when appearances are darkest, the dawn of a more comfortable day is near. 9. Let your intercourse with men be marked by a strict and conscientious regard to truth, honour, justice, kindness and courtesy. We should certainly have recommended politeness as a happy means of polishing social intercourse and affording pleasure to those with whom you are conversant. But many are accustomed to connect an unpleasant idea with this word. But surely, genuine politeness, if not itself a virtue, spreads a charm and beauty over that which is virtuous. And certainly there is no merit in awkwardness and clownishness. But our chief object under this particular is to urge upon you a constant and punctilious regard to the social virtues. Be honest, be upright, sincere, men of your word, faithful to every trust, kind to everybody, respectful where respect is due, generous according to your ability, grateful for benefits received, and delicate in the mode of conferring favours. Let your integrity be unsuspected. Never resort to any mean or underhand measure, but let your conduct and conversation be characterized by frankness and candor, by forbearance, and a spirit of indulgence and forgiveness. In short, do unto others do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Ten. Live not merely for yourselves, but also for the good of others. Selfishness contracts the soul and hardens the heart. The man absorbed in selfish pursuits is incapable of the sweetest, noblest joys of which our nature is susceptible. The author of our being has ordained laws according to which the most exquisite pleasure is connected, not with the direct pursuit of our own happiness, but with the exercise of benevolence. On this principle, it is that he who labours wholly for the benefit of others, and as it were forgets himself, is far happier than the man who makes himself the centre of all his affections, the sole object of all his exertions. On this principle it was that our Saviour said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Resolve, therefore, to lead lives of usefulness. Be indifferent to nothing which has any relation to the welfare of men. Be not afraid of diminishing your own happiness by seeking that of others. Devise liberal things, and let not avarice shut up your hand from giving to him that needeth, and to promote the cause of piety and humanity. 11. Be faithful and conscientious in the discharge of all duties which arise out of the relations which you sustain to others. Relative duties are far more numerous than all others because the occasions requiring their performance 
are constantly occurring. The duties of parents, of children, of brothers and sisters, of neighbours, of masters and servants, of teachers and pupils, of magistrates and citizens, of the learned professions, of trade, of the rich and the poor, occupy a very large portion of the time and attention of every man. And these furnish the proper test of character. He who is faithful in little is faithful also in much. And he who is not attentive to the daily recurring duties of his station in vain claims the reputation of virtue or piety by splendid acts of public beneficence. Though I give all my goods to the feed the poor and have not charity, it profited me nothing. 12. Exercise incessant vigilance against the dangers and temptations by which you are surrounded and by which you will certainly be assailed. These dangers are too numerous to be specified in detail, but I will mention a few. Guard solicitously against all approaches towards infidelity. Reject unbelieving thoughts and sceptical doubts from the beginning. Even if the system of infidelity were true, it promises no comfort and cannot possibly be serviceable to you. But the best security will be to study diligently the evidences of religion and be ready to meet the cavils of infidelity at all points. Make yourselves well acquainted with the best authors on this subject and let your faith rest on the firm ground of evidence. Another danger against which you must be watchful is pleasure, sensual pleasure. Worldly amusements, however innocent they may appear, are replete with hidden dangers. These scenes exhilarate the spirits and excite the imagination until reason and confidence are hushed and the real end of living is forgotten. For the sake of pleasure, Everything important and sacred is neglected, and the most valuable part of human life wasted in unprofitable engagements. Beware then of the vortex of dissipation, and especially of the least approach towards the gulf of intemperance. On that slippery ground, many strong men have fallen, never to rise. The trophies of this insidious and destructive vice are widely spread on every side, and the wise and the good have come to the conclusion that there is no effectual security against this enemy, but in a resolute and persevering abstinence from an ebriating drink. Seek your happiness, dear youth, in the pursuit of useful objects and in the performance of duty, and then you will be safe, and you will have no reason to envy the votaries of sensual pleasure. 13. A council, near akin to that which has just been given is, govern your tongue. More sin, it is probable, is committed and more mischief done by this small member than in all other ways. The faculty of speech is one of our most useful endowments, but it is exceedingly liable to abuse. He who knows how to bridle his tongue is therefore in scripture dominated a perfect man, and the gain of him, who seemeth to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, it is declared that this man's religion is vain. The words which we utter are a fair index of the moral state of the mind. 
By thy word, says our Lord, shalt thou be justified, and by thy word shalt thou be condemned. Not only are not only are sins of the tongue more numerous than others, but some of them are the most heinous of which man can be guilty. Even that one sin which had no forgiveness of forgiveness is a sin of the tongue. Not only should all profaneness, obscenity, and falsehood be put far away, but you should continually endeavour to render your conversation useful. Be ever ready to communicate knowledge, to suggest profitable ideas, to recommend virtue and religion, to rebuke sin and to give glory to God. Beware of evil speaking. A habit of detraction is one of the worst which you can contract, and is always indicative of an envious and malignant heart. Instead of prostituting this active and useful member to the purposes of slander, employ it in defending the innocent and the injured. Permit me to suggest the following brief rules for the government of the tongue. Avoid loquacity in the multitude of words that wanteth not sin. If you have nothing to communicate which can be useful, be silent. Think before you speak. How many painful anxieties would be prevented by obeying this simple common sense precept? Especially be cautious about uttering anything in the form of a promise without consideration. Be conscientiously regardful of truth, even to a tittle in all that you say. Never speak what will be likely to excite bad feelings of any kind in the mind of others. Be ready on all suitable occasions to give utterance to good sentiments, especially such as may be useful to the young. Listen respectfully to the opinions of others, but never fail to give your testimony, modestly but firmly, against error. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of any time, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. 14. Keep a good conscience. If wickedness had no other punishment than the stings of conscience which follows evil actions, it would be reason enough to induce every considerate man to avoid that which is productive of so much pain. No misery of which the human mind is susceptible is so intolerable and so unremediable as remorse of conscience. And it is liable to be renewed as often as a guilty action is distinctly recollected. It is true that conscience, by means of error and repeated resistance to its dictates, may become callous, seared as with a hot iron. But this apparent death of moral sensibility is no more than a sleep. At an unexpected time, and in circumstances the most inconvenient, conscience may be aroused, and may exert a more tremendous power than was ever before experienced. The long arrearages of sins committed, while no notice seemed to be taken of them, now demand and enforce consideration. Joseph's brethren seem to have almost forgotten their unnatural and cruel conduct in selling him as a slave into a foreign country. But when many years had elapsed, and they found themselves environed with difficulties and danger in that very land, 
the remembrance of their kind painfully rushed upon their minds and extorted from their mutual confession of their guilt. God, said they, have found out the iniquity of thy servants. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is his distress come upon us. Men often endeavour to escape from the stings of a guilty conscience by a change of place, but the remedy is ineffectual. The transgressor may traverse the widest ocean, transcend the loftiest mountains, and bury himself in the dark recesses of the desert, but he cannot fly so far, nor conceal himself so effectually, as to escape from his tormentor. In some cases, the agonies of remorse have been so intolerable that the guilty perpetrator of great wickedness has preferred strangling and death to a miserable life, and has rushed and called into the presence of his judge. And in other cases, men guilty of bloody crimes have found the pangs of remorse so intolerable that they have voluntarily given themselves up to justice, and by a voluntary confession have convicted themselves where no human witnesses were competent to prove their guilt. But what man is there who has not committed sins, the recollection of which gives insensible pain? And such acts often stand out in strong relief in the retrospect of the past. No effort can obliterate such things from the memory. We may turn away our eyes from the disagreeable object, but the painful idea will return again, unless men whose consciences are not seared are haunted by guilt as by a troublesome ghost, and often their sins find them out and stare them in the face when danger threatens or calamity has overtaken them. Why moral sensibility should be so much more exquisite at some times than others cannot be ex easily explained, but the fact is certain and is probably familiar to the consciousness of all. There may indeed exist a morbid susceptibility, an unreasonable scrupulousness, and a terror of conscience, which is, real and and which is a real and distressing disease, and which yields only to physical remedies judiciously applied. Melancholy is not the effect of religious impressions, but is a state of mind of a most unhappy kind, produced by a derangement of the physical system, and which leads the subject of it to fix his thoughts and those things which are most awful and gloomy. The same is true in regard to insanity. Many people entertain strong prejudices against experimental religion because they apprehend that it endangers the reason and drives the timid and weak-minded weak into mania. Now, it is no doubt that any strong emotional passion may when there existed predisposition to the disease, disturbed the regular exercise of reason. But that this danger is greater to persons deeply exercised about religion than to others is utterly without foundation. Fanaticism, it may be conceded, has a tendency to insanity. Indeed, it has long appeared to me that fanaticism, especially in its mildest form, is nothing else than a species of insanity. <coughs> I have upon no other hypothesis 
been able to account for the opinions and conduct of some persons who have been led away into the excesses of enthusiasm. But what is the most effectual preservative from this kind of mental derangement? Is it irreligion, vice, and infidelity? By no means. Persons who take refuge in such things <coughs> find them to be a refuge of lies. The only effectual remedy against the misery of a disturbed mind and a guilty conscience is true religion. For this wound, the balm of Gilead is the only medicine which is proved by experience to be efficacious. He who is able to cherish a lively hope of happiness beyond the grave, who can look up to God as a reconciled father, and who feels goodwill to all men, has surely within him the ingredients of a settled peace of mind. When I counsel you, my young friends, to keep a good conscience, I mean that you should, in the first place, endeavour to obtain this inestimable blessing by an application to the blood of sprinkling. Until the soul is justified and sin pardoned, there can be no true peace of conscience. While the law remains unsatisfied for us, and denounces vengeance against us for our sins, what in the universe can give us peace? For when by faith the soul apprehends the atonement, and sees that it is commensurate to all the demands of the law, and that in the cross justice is not only satisfied, but gloriously illustrated, it is, once, it is at once relieved from the agony of guilt, and the peace of God which passes understanding pervades the soul. The great secret of genuine peace is therefore living faith in the blood of Christ. But if you would preserve your conscience pure and enjoy peace, you must not only obtain forgiveness for the past, but must be very careful to sin no more in future. The law of God is exceeding broad, and if we would preserve peace of conscience, we must conform our actions to its precepts with assiduous and holy diligence. A good conscience is always an enlightened conscience. Through error, a man may believe that he is doing God's service when he is persecuting his people. But such a conscience is not good. Men may act conscientiously, and yet act wickedly, very wickedly. I suppose that all the devotees of the most absurd and impious superstition act according to the dictates of conscience, even when they sacrifice human beings and exposed to death their own offspring or themselves. But who would say that such a conscience was good? The correct knowledge of truth, therefore, lies at the foundation of a good conscience. Nothing is more important to man than the truth. Therefore, buy the truth, and sell it not. But too often conscience is not regarded when it correctly dictates what should be done or avoided. Amidst the cravings of appetite, the storm of the passions, and the incessant bustle of the world, the whispers of conscience are not heeded. In multitudes of instances, where persons do wrong, they have a premonition of the evil, or at least a suggestion that it is proper to inquire and consider what duty demands. Some persons are conscientious in great matters, who in comparatively small concerns seem to have no moral discernment. The habit of consulting the moral sense 
in all things is of great importance. Before you act, consider, and beware of the false colouring which passion and self-interest throw around the subjects of duty. Learn to lean to the safe side, where an action is of dubious character. Do not venture upon it. Be fully persuaded in your own mind, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Some persons are conscientious and punctilious about little things, but careless about the weightier matters of the law. This is the conscience of a hypocrite. Others have a mind ill at ease, because of the festering wound of guilt has never been thoroughly probed and cleansed, but merely externally healed. Their repentance has not been deep enough, nor universal enough. Some secret sin is still too much indulged. Now while these are the facts, a good conscience is an impossible thing. Sincere penitence, humiliation and confession are God's prescribed remedy. And where these are wanting, the conscience will not be at peace. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.